Mark 13, beginning in verse 24 through the end of the chapter, verse 37. Once again, God's holy and inspired word. God's word, Mark 13, beginning in verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. As far as the reading of God's word may bless to us, let us pray. So in response to the disciples' question about temple destruction, Jesus has been talking about the day of the Lord. Since temple leveling was a mini-day of the Lord for judgment, he blurred together that event with the final day. Thus, most of the events he predicted kind of fit A.D. 70, but not very well. A four-year war and siege doesn't really have the urgency of fleeing without a water bottle. The desolator figure from Daniel doesn't match well what Rome did to the temple, but pointed to the final Antichrist figure. Particularly, those various tribulations and ordeals possessed an after-the-fact character. That is, you can only be sure of their fulfillment in hindsight, after it has happened. This was especially the case for that worst tribulation ever ever in verse 19. In the moment, it it may feel like the most terrible since creation, but there's no objective way to know for sure until the end. Excuse me. And Jesus gives us another one of these events in verse 24. He says, but in those days, and this refers to those times of false Christ, deceptive miracles, and the intense suffering linked with that desolator figure, basically our current days. But then he adds, after that tribulation, after the worst distress, since God said, let there be light, this is a point in time. At some time, the tribulation will end. But when and how will we know? Well, he told us 
that God had to cut short the days of agony, lest no human would be saved. The tribulation ends when God stops it. So how will God give the days of suffering a haircut? Well, Jesus drops the answer for us. He says the sun will grow black, the moon will be turned off, and the stars will plummet from their courses, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. This is nothing less than cosmic decreation. The rulers of night and day will be disposed and cast down. The permanent and seemingly everlasting celestial bodies will be traced in white chalk. Such cataclysmic upheavals are nearly too mammoth for us to even ponder. Instead of hail, it will rain falling stars. Now, this language is prophetic, so it doesn't give us an exact video preview of what will happen, but a couple of things stand out about this cosmic dissolution. For one, Jesus borrowed some of these images from Isaiah 13, which we read. Now, this creation upheaval echoes numerous passages in the Old Testament, but a chief one is Isaiah 13. And from this chapter, the melting of heaven indicates two things. One, the sun's candle is blown out by the very presence of the God of glory. The stars peter out when the Lord marches forth in all his terrifying majesty. Second, the color of God's glory is wrath. He marches with the warrior boots of storm clouds. His chariot flies on the wings of the tempest, and his fully automatic bow spews lightning bolts. Thus, in Isaiah 13, the Lord destroys the world city of Babylon, and he punishes the the world for its evil. The sun will go dark, This is terrifying because it's eclipsed by the holy fury of God. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But there is another standout feature of this heavenly upheaval. Namely, it's universal, which contrasts with the false Christ in the previous verses. Note that they point, here is the Christ, or There he is. Such pointing is local, regional. It's limited to a specific geographical point on the map. If a prophet leads you out into Judean desert to meet the Christ, this cannot be experienced by people living in the heartland of China or the Canadian tundra. But the sun melting Everyone can see, no matter where you pitch your tent on this globe. Indeed, half of the world witnesses a black sun, and the other half sees the moon's light quenched. This then makes it beyond obvious why you should not rub two pennies together for anyone claiming to be the Christ. If the sun and moon are not being handed over to the gravedigger, then there is no Christ. And yet, now Jesus does a bit of a switcheroo on our expectations. Cosmic dissolution whets our appetite for the Lord coming to judge, grand and horrific. And yet Jesus colors outside the lines. Instead of Yahweh riding the clouds, it's the Son of Man. 
Now, clearly, Jesus refers to the passage in Daniel 7 here about the mysterious and majestic figure of the Son of Man presenting himself before the Ancient of Days when he received a kingdom and a people forever and ever. But the mixing of imagery here is shocking, like sticking a paperclip into an outlet. For the image of riding the clouds is basically a title for Yahweh. He is the cloud rider, the supreme warrior, the king of kings and god of gods. So also this combination of power and glory is only applied to the transcendent god of the Old Testament. Yahweh riding the clouds to trample the stars, this is standard Old Testament orthodoxy. It's comfortable theology. But the Son of Man? How can one who has been born of a woman replace God in the cloud chariot? The Son of Man is the favorite title that Jesus used for himself. This means that a Hebrew raised in Galilee who had to eat and sleep to live? A man who is about to bleed and be buried in a cave? How can such a guy who can't survive a Roman spear trample the sun and the moon? Well, he can, because Jesus is not a mere man. Fully God and fully man, Jesus is Yahweh come in the flesh. And because he was perfectly righteous, because he gave up his own life willingly, this is why he can ride the clouds. Behold, beloved saints, this is your Savior. Rightly, with Scripture, we like to emphasize the tender side of Jesus, that he's our shepherd, our elder brother, our friend, our sympathetic priest. This is all true and wonderful, but we cannot let this side of Jesus make us forget about his other side, great, powerful, and terrifying in holy wrath, to judge this present evil age. Jesus is gentle, but nothing is wimpy about him. But there's another expectation that Jesus tweaks. We anticipate judgment, but Jesus talks about gathering. He says he will send forth his angels to gather his elect from the four winds of the world from the glaciers of Antarctica to the slums of Cairo, from the prairies of Mongolia to the beaches of Carlsbad. It matters not where where you are, the Son of Man's angels will collect you. The angels will gather you. There is no cave too deep or space shuttle too high. Jesus will retrieve all who are his. This gathering, though, is not judgment, but salvation. This image is imagery is the stereotypical picture in the Old Testament for God saving and gathering his people scattered in exile. Sure, judgment will happen, but this is not where Jesus focuses us. Instead, he turns our hearts to the great salvation in store for us when we see him on those clouds. And he does this for your comfort and to bolster the certainty of your hope. For what has he been mainly talking about so far? How much we will suffer. Wars and earthquakes, 
drugged before courts of law, hated by everyone, enduring tribulation that feels like the worst ever? Yes, these will sting, but be of good courage, for the gathering is coming. Jesus is coming back for you with a salvation sweeter than you can ever imagine. Besides, the worst on earth is nothing compared to the best ever in heaven with Jesus. But now, Jesus, that Jesus has set our minds on the things above, he tells us to wait. Your Lord and Savior has the most glorious end in store for you, but you must wait for it. So how do we wait for Jesus to come on those clouds? Well, he gives us a little parable, the parable of the fig tree. Now, to bring up a fig tree, this makes us think of the cursed fig tree back in chapter 11. There he cursed the uh, fruitless fig as a sign of his condemnation of the temple. Thus, is he referring to this fig? Well, the answer is no, as he takes the imagery in a completely different direction. In this parable, the fig coming into its leaves is a sign of summer coming. The point is simple. Trees are great predictors of the changing of the seasons. When the fig gets its leaves, you know that the charming days of summer are just around the corner. And so also it is for us. When we see these things take place, it's clear that Jesus is near. He's standing at the very gates of heaven. This seems to be a good predictor of when Christ will come again at least at first. But what are these things that we will see? These things are more general. These things refer to everything that Jesus has been talking about. Persecution, false Christ, and when the stars are falling. And this is where Jesus' points point here gets more parabolic, a bit tricky, ambiguous, or polyvalent. Sure, cosmic destruction is definite that Christ is coming. But the other things, like tribulation and world hatred, are constant in our lives that ebb and flow. If these things are persistent, then the fig is always coming into his leaves and summer consistently appears near. And this is our Lord's point. If the signs of his coming are daily, then Jesus always seems near and yet unpredictable. Thus, he keeps teasing out this point. Next, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Again, on first read, this appears to be a definite calendar marker. Within one generation, it's all going to go down. We know that Jesus is ministering in the late 20s or early 30s A.D., And a generation is roughly 40 years in the Old Testament. Bam, 30 plus 40 equals 70 AD temple destruction. Easy. But then you check your math, and there's this variable, all these things. The worst suffering, this wasn't in 70 AD. The desolator did not show up at temple destruction. And there have been plenty of false Christs since Rome laid waste to Jerusalem. And there was surely no melting of heaven back in the first century. Yet if this is the case, D 
did our Lord give a false prophecy? Well, no. Rather, he's employing this generation prophetically. That is, in various books of the Bible, when they talk about matters of the end times, they regularly use this generation as a synonym for this present evil age. They use it to highlight a final period before the end. There is this present evil age and then the age to come. This generation, then, is the final one before the end. Moreover, this generation is grouped by character and not by number of years. It's figuratively, temporally. Rather, it emphasizes what is wicked and evil. That is, as long as this world is rebellious and villainous, this generation goes on. As long as the world hates those who love Christ, this generation lives on. Hence, our Lord is again being hard to pin down. He's keeping intention, nearness, and undateable. He's driving home the paradox that we cannot and ought not to resolve. False Christ means the fig is in leaf and summer is close. But false teachers are a daily occurrence. If this generation is as long as this present evil age, then we cannot pin the end on the calendar. And this is the tension Jesus wants us to live under. Though this tension should not make us doubt Christ's word. As he says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words never die. Here Jesus anticipates that we will feel like his words failed. Jesus said he would come soon, but it's been too long. I guess it's not true. But heaven forbid, our lords are more stable than the sun and moon. The end will come. He will mount those glory clouds to come collect us all. It will always seem to be near, even though it may be long. And he continues to drive home this this paradox. Next, he says, concerning that day or hour, no one knows. The exact moment of Christ's second coming is classified at the highest level. The angels do not have security clearance. Not even the Son knows, but only the Father. This is the best guarded secret in the universe. The Father alone knows the moment of the second coming. Now, Jesus is speaking very humanly here. To say that the Father knows, but the Son doesn't, he's not addressing the essence of the Trinity, as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one and equal. Rather, Jesus is speaking in accordance with the roles that the Father and Son agreed to take on for our redemption. In order to be our Savior, Jesus agreed to humble himself to not consider equality something to be held on to. Thus, just as Jesus took on suffering to die for us, so he gave up in his work as Savior certain clearances to secret. Nevertheless, the point being, if Jesus and the angels do not know the day, how much less any human? The second coming is completely unpredictable, so don't even try 
Think then about the arrogance of those teachers throughout church history who have attempted to date Jesus' coming. To say that you know the date is to claim that you know better and are above Jesus Christ himself, which is kind of the definition of an antichrist. All those people who have forecasted Jesus' coming and stood on the mountaintop, yep, they are all in the camp of the antichrist. Therefore, we are not to touch prediction with a 50-mile pole. But what are we to do? Well, he tells us, be alert and stay awake. Note he repeats himself like four times. Stay awake. Don't sleep. Be alert. Attention. Stay awake. Constant vigilant, persistent alertness, and sleepless attention. This is what Jesus calls us to do. This is how we wait for our Lord's soon coming, even if it is far off. Though clearly, Jesus isn't calling us to an existence of insomnia. He isn't cursing those who have a soft bed and a puffy pillow. So how do we stay awake consistently? Well, he gives us an illustration. It's like a man who went on a journey. He told each of his servants what to do, each one with their own job. And he told them to stay busy, for we do not know when the master will come home. This is so helpful. How do we wait for our Lord's return? We do the jobs that he has given us to do. And Christ has told us to love our neighbors, to raise a family, and to serve the church. This is simple and profound. Waiting for Jesus is not giving away all you own to go sit out in the desert. No, rather you wait by growing in the fruits of the Spirit. You are heavenly-minded and hopeful of his return at any time by living in faith and walking in love and godliness. Coming to church is waiting well. Helping a saint, going to work, kissing your husband, these are good waiting as you do them spiritually-minded. Indeed, Paul often repeats this call to stay awake And he elaborates on it in two ways. One, Paul says we stay awake by being firm in the faith. Knowing Jesus, growing in Christ's knowledge, trusting in him, rejoicing in the gospel, and all such faith-healthy activities, this is how we wait well. Therefore, dear saints, tend well your faith in Christ so that it ever clings tighter to him. Second, Paul links our staying awake to prayer. We remain alert and attentive for Jesus by praying. And scripture generally doesn't specify any particular petition. Rather, we wait by just praying. That is, your regular prayers in the morning, at night, and before meals, this is proper waiting. Why, though, prayer in general? Well, probably because prayer keeps our minds and hearts on God. Prayer is gratitude expressed. It is humble dependence felt. It is desire to be near God. 
prayer is also chiefly done by us in worship. Prayer can be a synonym in Scripture for the Lord's Day worship. Thus, prayer we do together. Our songs are a form of prayer. In worship, our praying is a foretaste of that everlasting joy that Christ has in store for us. Indeed, on the Lord's Prayer, we or the Lord's Day, we pray the Lord's Prayer in which we ask, Thy kingdom come. This is an explicit petition for Christ to come on those clouds to gather us. Thy kingdom come is us praying and desiring the final great day of the Lord to dawn in all its fury, terror, and glory. Thy kingdom come is us praying for the world to be judged. Yet in the context of the Lord's Prayer and within worship, this petition especially reminds us that the final day of judgment will be one of joy for us. It is not wrath for you, but peace. Not death, but resurrection. Not destruction, but being gathered to the bosom of Christ. And why? Why will the sun turning dark and the stars falling be joyful for you? Because Jesus died for you. Because he justified you in his righteousness All condemnation is past, and the final day is one of joyful salvation and everlasting life. Indeed, on the cross, Jesus suffered the final day of wrath for you so that you do not have to. What a glorious and gracious salvation Christ has won for you, and this is how we wait. By having our minds fixed upon Christ, who is in heaven for you, we wait through all the tribulations of these last days. We wait by trusting in the word of Christ and holding to the tension that Jesus' coming is always soon and yet never late. By doing the work he gave us to do and by singing his praise, so we wait well on Christ, confident that his word will never perish. Thus, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let us pray.